Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. Our latest novel, Limelight, a story of sisterhood, sexuality and self-esteem, is available nationwide. I've got various Limelight events coming up, including Harbour Books in Whitstable with Catherine May on the 20th of June and Cambridge Waterstones with Lucy Vine on the 28th of June. Tickets are available and there are more events to be announced. If you'd like a personalised, dedicated, signed copy of Limelight, you can order one from my lovely local, The Margate Bookshop. They deliver across the UK. Now on to today's guest. Bali Kaur Jaswal is the author of several excellent novels, including the smash hit Erotic Stories for Punjabi Widows, a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. We're celebrating her brilliant new book, Now You See Us, which is one of the best things I've read all year. It's Big Little Lies meets The Help, but it's so much more than that. Cora, Danita and Angel are domestic workers in Singapore, tasked with coming together and unravelling the secrets and lies of their employers. It's perfect smart summer reading. Bali and I talked about expressions of Americana, people, places and things, and the best and smelliest library in the whole world. The first thing I wanted to ask you is, I love funny books and I love your books because the humour is just so brilliant. Um, What were the first books you remember reading and thinking, oh, this is funny? Because I think sometimes when I, especially as a younger reader, I was really excited to discover that funny books existed and that books were allowed to be funny. You know, actually one of the earliest books probably that not funny so much as quirky and strange and brought me into just a new world was The Twits by Roald Dahl. And I think just the, the, you know, it it is sort of a dark humor and it's sort of a grotesque humor. In it, but just knowing that stories could be told like that, you know, and that, and that there was this absurdity, I think just opened up my world a little bit more and made me realize that stories didn't have to necessarily be that literal, that the villains could actually be, you know, you could, you could sort of portray them in these absurd and grotesque ways. I love the glee of how disgusting that book is. And I think, especially, I sort of felt then reading as a young girl that lots of the books that I were being given were sort of not improving exactly, but that sort of, no one was reveling in their own grossness like they do in the twits. And that felt quite exciting. I think so. I think the illustrations also helped. You know, like every time I think about those early Roald Dahl books, like The Witches, I think about those, you know, this very crude sort of drawings um, and, and, and what they kind of ignited in my imagination because they're, they're quite, they're quite, spare you know they're not they're not colored in or anything but somehow you get a whole three-dimensional sense of of these villains they are so striking and with these books uh stories that you were finding for yourself or were they being read to you was the parent or teacher sharing them so my reading journey is actually quite interesting because i um i guess i began reading and really fell in love with stories and writing when i attended an international school in tokyo uh, when I was growing up, uh, we, we moved around a lot. And the school that I went to just had a really huge emphasis on creativity and, you know, self-expression and things like that, um, as opposed to the school that I ended up going to in Singapore, which is the complete opposite. It was a uh, Catholic school, uh, just very, yeah, very, very, very strict terms about what how a girl should be and, 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 how, and, and the limits, you know, what limits there should be to your imagination. And it seems there were lots of limits. So... A lot of those books that were read to me by teachers and introduced to me by teachers kind of felt like a dirty secret. 
when I moved to Singapore and I would tell other kids about them. Um, you know, like we kind of share with you know, there's this Roald Dahl book. Um, and some kids knew about them, but it was, it was all very illicit because we were meant to only read English books for sort of utilitarian purposes for, you know, improving your English. So things like comic books, things like um, Sweet Valley Twins, when, when we got our hands on them, were very taboo and were verboten, essentially. Uh, they were confiscated from us. I think that really strengthens the love of books, mm-hmm. doesn't yeah. it? When someone places this sort of very arbitrary value and says some books are better than others, and you just want to say, not necessarily. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say, actually, coming back to the question of, you know, the Roald Dahl books obviously were early ones. Um, books that kind of spoke the truth to me were really important as well. Uh, and I think Judy Bloom, you know, I think a lot of girls would say that Judy Bloom and Beverly Clearly, Cleary, yeah, d- did that for me. I think, you know, just portraying children um, as these autonomous individuals and portraying their questions as not something to be ashamed of. Gigi Bloom rightly comes up on this podcast a lot, and I think Forever might be the most yeah. mentioned <laughs> book, but Beverly Cleary. Not so much. And I love her and I love the Ramona books. And I think a lot about a book that she wrote, I think called 15. Yeah. And it's an incredibly sweet, pure, do you yeah. know that one? And I love it because as well as it being a, the most kind of America, it's an, an America that was in my imagination being sort of, you know, in a fairly rural part of the UK. Um, but also it's not such a dramatic story. It's all quite straightforward. And I love someone who's so confident in her craft to just tell a very simple kind of boy meets girl with really minor drama, but it's still captivating. Yeah. I had actually forgotten how, what an impact she made on me until um, she passed away, I think, a couple of years ago. And then lots of tributes are pouring in, um, you know, describing the impact that the Ramona books and lots of images of the Ramona books were coming in as well on social media. And then I went, oh, yeah, like I always talk about, I always talk about Judy Bloom in the Sweet Valley series. And I forget like Ramona was actually a very lasting, very vivid character. Something I remember about Ramona as well that felt to me very unusual about contemporary um, American writing for sort of children and teenagers, there seemed to be a real class consciousness and there was very subtle anxieties about sort of her friend. Was it Howie, the kid yeah. next door? And I think Howie's mum was maybe slightly pretentious mm. and put on airs. And there was a creeping anxiety about money mm. always yes. and how the family were going to make things yeah. work. And I don't know that I really saw so much of that in American literature other than in the Laura Ingalls yes. Wilder books, which are a very different sort of way of, of surviving. And, and I love that so much about your writing as well. That I think your observations about class are so subtle and brilliant and so universal. Thank you. <laughs> even when they're about something so specific. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you never want to sort of um, put the whole focus on class because then you're writing a textbook, right? And you and you never want to, you know, sort of center everything on an issue. But these things, they're so much a part of our identity that it's so important to not erase them from the narrative as well. Definitely. So growing up, when you were attending various international schools and living in very different countries, it sounds as though there was a lot of, American literature, some British literature. Were there any books that you read because you were in that place at that time or books mm. that you remember that you feel should be perhaps better known than they are? Yeah, I would say that throughout my childhood, most of the books, I would say 99% of the books that I read were imported from overseas. You know, they were the, the we we had some local literature uh, in Singapore, but then in the other countries I moved to, the the, the any books that were in or any local books would have been in the the native language of that country, which I didn't speak because I was attending these English medium schools. Um, and so even more so, I think I kind of, you know, ran towards the more Western centric literature because that was that felt familiar to me. Um, even before having set foot in England or America, those worlds felt very familiar to me in the, in the you know, the various places that we lived in. That said, um, when I was growing up in Singapore and a lot of people from my generation speak very nostalgically about this. There's a series called the Bookworm Club. <laughs> and it was about, I think it was about this, this, this cast of four characters. It was, you know, a, 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 a Singapore published um, series. And I, I don't, I think maybe they went around solving mysteries or maybe they just shared the books they liked. I'm not sure actually what, what they got up to. Um, I remember there was one character who was a writer 
and uh, and then, like they all had kind of different personalities and they were they were just um very very compelling those 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 stories were very compelling kids loved them it was a series kids passed them around and i don't think anything took up the mantle in the, quite the same way now there there's a lot of middle grade um and young adult fiction in singapore but i don't know what and I, obviously i'm not tuned into it cuz i'm not that age anymore i don't know what um you know has has kind of brought people together like the bookworm series and maybe I'll know when you know kids are older and they talk they look back because at the time I think we just didn't really think much of it we just read those books and then they were gone you know like we we grew out of that phase and then they just stopped publishing them after a while um they were outdated but when you talk to people and go hey remember bookworm club people get really excited <laughs> I want, like a real cult I want to be in yeah. this, the bookworm <laughs> really club fun. I want to find these books because it it sounds so charming. And I wonder as whether that idea, because it, it sounds such as like very kind of conceptually American somehow, like the name well, and the idea, or even, you know, there's like the classics of Enid Blyton, like the gangs, like everyone's got their personality yeah. and like a sort of a, a Singapore interpretation of something that exists elsewhere. And I think that's so fascinating in culture generally, where something is imitating something yeah. and then the first thing starts imitating the last thing and there's a sort of amazing mirror bounce. Yeah. And I think what, what we liked about, or at least what I enjoyed about it was that it was very, in the same way that, like you say, the Ramona books, you know, had that, that um, element of class to them. The Bookworm Club books, as far as I remember, just felt very slice of life. They didn't, like, there was no magic. There was no, I, I, maybe there's some investigating of things. I think the conflict were, were, the conflicts were all very simple um, and I think the things that kids are into now, like I can think of like a, there's a detective series that lots of kids are into now that's, that's um, Singaporean, as written by uh, a, a couple here. And I think, you know, that has a lot more bells and whistles. And that must be really fun. Like I probably would have been really into that when I was a kid. But I kind of appreciate that it was, Bookworm Club was just so simple. The, the pages were all black and white. The illustrations were all black and white. They were just kind of drawn. And it was just, yeah. It was it was just slice of life. Can you remember early trips to bookstores? Is that something? Were you in there a lot? Would you go as a treat? Where did you go, and how did you kind of move between sections? So bookstores, yeah, I loved. I remember a very vivid memory that I have is that in Singapore, um, there used to be every every year in September there was a book fair. Um, and it was held at the World Trade Center, so massive kind of expo hall. And it was across the island from where we lived. So, and it was all, it was always held during the school holidays. So my mom would wake up, wake us up in the morning and be like, all right, we're going, we're going to the book fair. And I wouldn't say that I grew up in a household that cherished or really valued books that much. <laughs> like we didn't, you know, my parents were quite pragmatic. So they did kind of see, you know, reading fiction as a bit of a waste of time and they thought it was kind of silly and you can just borrow from the library. Why would you buy a book? Um, but I think they made an exception for some reason for this, this big book fair. I think the books were very heavily discounted at this book fair. Um, and I <laughs> guess I figured we get you all the books, you know, now. Um, and we would, we would take this long bus journey across the Island and just like walk through these stalls, picking out everything. I say we, I, my brother and I, my brother turned out not to be a reader at all. He stopped reading around the age of 10, but I still really held on to that, those book fairs. And then the other, um, very lasting memory for me, and I think this is probably, this is something that was more regular in my life was, um, there used to be a secondhand bookshop in, <laughs> in a fish market it's the strangest place so there was a wet market near our house and i would accompany my mom there to help her carry the bags of, of groceries home um and as a reward she would let me you know walk around and, and and look and it was this tiny little stall and it was you know the wet market just it it, it smells terrible it smells like fish guts right and it's crowded <laughs> and it's sticky and the floor is wet all the time it's not it's not an appealing place it's not a place you associate with books at all Something about this stall, it was, firstly, it was just immaculate. It was like, you know, the lighting was bright white and the books were arranged so neatly and they were packed in so tightly that the woman who ran the stall, who had this amazing sort of beehive, this really teased beehive, these glittery vests that she wore and these really long talons. She had these really, really long 
acrylic nails. She would use those nails to sort of pick out, to, to pull out the book that you wanted if you pointed to it. Um, and they were secondhand books, but they were you could rent them. So you would pay a certain amount. And then um, if you return them in good condition within a certain number of weeks and you got some cash back. And so we always made it a point to return them. Um, and and they, there were books in there that they didn't have at the library at the time, like, you know, the junk, you know, like the, the R.L. Stein and the Sweet Valley and the Judy Bloom, all the stuff that wasn't educational. And it was that was a joy. I mean, I, I look back on the wet market so fondly because of the, the trip to the bookstore. I love that. So I love the glamour yes. of that woman that normally you'd imagine someone in kind of a slightly threadbare pullover <laughs> and they've got the big glasses on. Oh, let me see. But it's like the, the nails yeah, yeah. going through. She was dressed up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, R.L. Stein and the Goosebump mm. books as well. That brand. I remember at school that was if there was a new Goosebumps book. It really, you know, the cool kids and the nerds, and I was definitely a nerd. Everyone was excited for that. And I love that balance of the being mm. scary, but not too scary. Because it sounds as though a lot of what you were drawn to was quite, I love that slice of life idea and the things sort of rooted in in reality. Are there any sort of genres that you've been drawn to or that you've had periods of reading or do you like things that feel quite real and rooted in life? Yeah, I would say I, I really like things that were real and rooted in life. And I wonder how I would do as a kid today or as a kid in the Harry Potter era, you know, where it was, there was so much magic and there was so much fantasy. Because I remember, again, it that was a little bit like if my parents were dismissive of fiction as kind of an indulgence, they were definitely dismissive of like magic and all like fan anything with fantasy. Like my mother would just be, would have a re really kind of disgusted sort of reaction to anything sci-fi, anything, you know, when someone sprouted wings or had a tail or there was glitter and there were fairies, she would just get really like, oh God, I can't believe this. Like they were very much, very, very much, you know, you, you it, that's not real. That doesn't happen. Um, and so I, I, I wonder if some of that was conditioning. Um, but then a lot of people grow up like that and they and they run to magic, right? They run to fantasy because of that. Um, I would say no for me. It was, yeah, it was always realism. It was always like interiority was always fascinating to me. Like why do characters do the things they do? And also injustice, I think, was very interesting to me. So once I started you know, reading fiction that had, you know, themes that, that, that dealt with violence towards women or and stuff that I probably shouldn't have been reading so young, but there really was a gap then in the market. There really wasn't much oh. in terms of young adult fiction. You just jumped straight from middle grade to you know uh, adult stuff. I'd love to hear about some of those books. <laughs> if you can tell me some of the first sort of adult oh, gosh um, books you read. You know what it was? It was a lot of those memoirs that are a bit sensational. I know they still exist now, but back then, I think in the nineties, they were very popular of like British Asian girl grows up in England and then her family decides to send her back to Pakistan, you know, and, and for a forced marriage. And then she's, and she escaped like my, my escape from the forced marriage or like, what's the Sally Field movie? The, not without my daughter, that sort of thing. There was a, that was a whole genre, wasn't it? This really kind of popular fiction with raised lettering um, that, you know, was very salacious and very, had some nuggets of truth, but also were, you know, we look back now, they're, they're quite, um, they, they really generalize the culture and they really portray things in very black and white ways. And they sort of presented themselves as being kind of culturally aware worthy or important. Definitely <laughs> it published in the UK anyway. It's like, look, we're, we're making you aware of things yeah. that are going on elsewhere in the world. Like they're really, really well. Yeah. No, they were still very much centered on a, on, on a Western experience and, and, and a Western idea of, of, you know, what those people are doing over there. But I found it quite interesting looking back now because a number of people who pass those books around, like I think about like people in my parents' circles um, and, and, you know, like like uncles and aunties that I knew really liked those books and they'd be like oh you know like they felt like they connected with them more than they would you know other books I mean there was there were very few things out there right that had people like us in them um but then there's also kind of a, a dark side to that because a lot of these books did kind of focus on um Muslim families they, they often were like you know about Saudi Arabia or about Pakistan and it always made me uneasy even then it kind of gave 
people in my parents' generation, I think, an excuse to be like, see, we're not, we're, we're much more liberal. <laughs> we're the different salvations. <laughs> you know, we don't practice those things. See what they're doing? And there was a bit of glee as well, a little bit of schadenfreude about um, people who migrated to the UK and then preserved their values, you know, and like didn't actually become modern, didn't actually become very Western. Look at what they ended up doing They're, You know, they ended up behaving the same way that they would have back in the village. So there's a bit of celebration around those books. It was it was very strange. That's really interesting because I often sort of, you know, look at those books and think, you know, I'm very aware mm. of how until, you know, shamefully recently, I just sort of really did mostly read white authors without ever thinking mm. about it. And I thought, like, oh, it's it's so embarrassing to know those those stories and those voices and what they were kind of heightening and exaggerating but the the idea as well that we'd all kind of there was a way to read them and use them and frame them in a way that maybe wasn't sort of so useful or helpful a bit like I think like I love addiction memoirs mm. and I think sometimes people are drawn to them because they think oh it, it could be worse yeah. I'm not so bad yeah. I'm fine yeah I think that's because those books are so extreme right that's how they sell they're so they're, they're like the most extreme version of that story so then like like I remember like one of the uncles like in my in my family who was really really liked those books and read them like was actually very strict with his daughter and like didn't approve of her her choices and who she dated and ended up you know kind of you know just 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 really forcing his hand you know with with her her decisions later in life and I was like he's kind of doing all the things that the dad in the book is doing but but he probably doesn't think so because he didn't he wasn't as bad he didn't you know send her off to get a forced marriage when she was 14 uh you know he, he wasn't he wasn't that bad in comparison I really wanted to ask because I know that in your writing you celebrate desire and see desire um among women in a really honest way and my first novel Insatiable was a um very rude book <laughs> um were there any sexy books that you discovered when you were reading or particular authors or love stories that you've always been drawn to or connected with? As a kid, again, like we were so forbidden from like it was it, everything was so censored and so monitored um, that, you know, of course, then it made it made it much more tempting to pass those narratives around. So I remember I think the I do remember those R.L. Stein books. Had a lot of sex scenes in them, didn't they? The ones, the Fear Street books. Oh, did they? Oh, yes. <laughs> there was definitely some. I do think, though, there are some books that I remember. Be like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> this is so rude. And then coming back and be like, did I, I think I imagined yeah. a lot of this is sex. I was writing my own yeah. scenes. I think as well about sort of the you know goosebumps mm. being so sort of of a specific time. But those, yeah, the more adult yeah. ones. I, I forgot the high school that. ones yeah and I think it probably came along with that adrenaline rush that you got because someone was going to get murdered right like the whole thing is like someone's going to get <laughs> killed every week someone gets killed in this high school and then that you know makes you want to have sex I suppose it was interesting I, I think maybe it's also what he could get away with like you know if kids are reading about murder then why not you know mm -hmm. put in sex scenes like the book is going to be contentious like maybe you know it, it was it was I remember that I remember like um, dog earring, like some of the, the you know, the, the, the pages and we'd pass them around and be like, hey, check out this part. You know, it was very like, you know, there was there was a lot of like excitement around those. Um, and then so I got into trouble in school. I remember when I was in grade three um, for starting my own detective club. <laughs> And, Excellent. And and um, writing sort of like everyone would write their little case files and then solve these mysteries around school. And of course, our case files were based on like the most scandalous things that we have read. So you know, it would it would always it would start off like I'm gonna I'm, I'm investigating a robbery, but then it would go into like you know other territory of like you know and then and we didn't know what was we didn't know what sex was. So it was like she took off her clothes, <laughs> a sexy robbery. <laughs> he took off his clothes. <laughs> They danced. Like, they were so, it was so innocent. Like, they did sex. <laughs> they did sex to each other. It was so innocent. But we wrote, like, and I, I remember putting all these little case files. I was, like, the head detective, I suppose. So I put all these files into a little, or these little uh, loose-leaf sheets of paper into a folder. I don't I can't remember what it was. We must have had a falling out. But the whole group decided to turn against me in a very sort of <laughs> dramatic girls grade three kind of way. And they, I remember one day I was sitting in class and I had this really strong sense of foreboding 
because the teacher told us to all go and like line up, you know, to, to, to go to PE. And she said, oh, just leave your bags here. And I looked, the girls kind of exchanged these glances and smirks. And I looked over and I was like, oh, no, like the files are all in my bag. And we left. And then when we came back from PE, the files were gone. They were all gone from my bag. And the, the teacher had taken them. Um, she'd confiscated them. And then she gave the class an over like a big sort of lecture about, you know, you shouldn't write these things and you should she didn't name any names. But I remember like I think I gathered the courage, I think when I was at the by the end of the year, I said, could I have my stories back? And she was like, no. <laughs> and she just took them, she took them right out of my bag. And I'm dying to know, like I'm dying to read them again um, <laughs> to see just how wrong I got sex. <laughs> but like I remember there was a lot, just a lot of shame around, you know, those narratives of desire or curiosity any of that stuff but it's just it's a double betrayal yeah. isn't it and i think it's such a vulnerable age when you're being creative and you, it's kind of it's untrammeled yeah. and it's just you and your imagination that sort of that first moment when someone suggests that something that could come out of your yeah. brain might be wrong and that's horrible if you, i'd love i don't know if you've ever had a run-in with that teacher <laughs> you know if she could see you now i you know i wrote i wrote an op-ed about this <laughs> and, and 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 I do wonder I do wonder sometimes if like I, I don't know how to get in touch with her I think she's retired but I'd love to send it to her and just be like I remember <laughs> you still have my folder <laughs> but there was another I guess another romance novel that comes to mind and this was much much more raunchy and much sexier and really took me by surprise I think when I was about 10 years old um, my dad was posted to Russia so we were living in Moscow Moscow kind of just just after the fall of communism. So there really was there was nothing to do. Wow. Yeah, it was very, um, very bleak. And I think my dad mentioned to someone that he worked with that I was really bored at home. Um, and she was like, oh, I've got some novels like your daughter seems old enough. I, I was considered quite mature for my age or I think people just assumed that I was older than I was. And she passed along some books. And I think back now I'm like, why would anyone give a 10 year old? I think it was a Judith Kranz or something like it. It was like a Judith Kranz novel or someone like Judith Kranz, you know, again, with like the bright colored cover and then the raised lettering. Um, and I was reading it and I was like, this is interesting. Yeah. And then there was this really, really vivid sex scene. Like it was, and I never read anything like that before. Like in the R.L. Stein books, it's still quite, it's still quite kind of glossed over, isn't it? Like they're making out. It is kind of just a step up from dated sex. To yeah, yeah, It's not too much of a No, leap. this was like quite detailed and quite like there was a lot of foreplay and there was a lot of like, there was fingering. Which I was like, what? <laughs> they did what? Is that what doing sex is? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just remember just being like, my heart was pounding because I was just so shocked. And, and I didn't know what I was reading. I was suddenly transported to this different world. And of course, like I folded the page over and I was like, everyone needs to hear about this. So <laughs> I think it was some time later that I was with some friends on a school bus. And I was like, check out this book. I, I guess I managed. Yeah, that's the thing too. I asked if I could keep that book. <laughs> and, <laughs> and now I'm like so embarrassed, right? Because my dad's coworker must have known why I wanted to keep the book. And she went, yeah, sure, you can have it. <laughs> And so I kept it and I remember showing it to like other kids um, and, and, and other girls and they were all passing it around. And then, you know, everyone was kind of adding like their knowledge and it was, you know, a lot of misconceptions and things. But yeah, it was, there was so much that we had to discover for ourselves in, in, in such accidental and strange ways. I think it was so generous of that woman though. And I was thinking about the difference between the first learning about sex and intimacy mm. that we have and the difference between reading a guy's take on it which is more or less like and it happened and then a woman writing about desire for yeah. other women and how you know especially now when you know there's this sort of massive moral panic about mm. you know porn and what children are exposed to and how explicit it is and how kind of how harmful that can be to women and I know that's a sort it's a very kind of daily mail mm. argument and I've lost its nuance and there is nuance there but definitely as a younger reader I was I think instinctively drawn to those stories and women writing about women having orgasms mm. and I was a very big fan of uh, Jilly Cooper and Jackie Collins and Judith Krantz um it's Charlie Conran who wrote Lace and Lace mm. is such a kind of 
it's not quite magical realism, but it almost borders on it because the sex is just so ridiculous <laughs> and outrageous. And I think Jackie Collins does this as well, where it's nothing that really could yeah. exist in the world. But it is compelling and it, it feels very fun and very safe to encounter it that way. And it's, I think, a really positive way to kind of meet sex for the first time. I, that, that really does strike me. I think safe is the key word there because there were so many other ways to encounter sex that weren't safe. And there were so many, like we all came, or at least I did, um, came to an understanding about sex from adults, about all the things to avoid and all the, and, 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 you know, very much in the context of, of assault, very much in the context of like, you know, don't talk to a stranger because he might do this to you or like, don't get into the lift with, you know, someone you don't know, or like it was, it was a lot of that. And there was this real sense of um, foreboding and darkness around something connected to sex or something connected to our body, like something that our bodies could somehow attract. And there was a lot of moral panic around that as well. So to kind of giggle about it with each other, to see joy in sex, I think, and to see, um, to see it, you know, represented so positively, I think. At the time, we probably didn't realize what a big deal that was. But looking back, that, that's probably what drew us so much to it and, 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 and created this sense of solidarity between girls oh I think that's so true and I think the idea that having reading those books and having a very strong reaction and then being able to share it it get that's more of that generosity I think being passed around between Mm. women I love it a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Bali soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Quietly Hostile by Samantha Irby a brilliant essay collection by the comedy writer, which tackles huge and important issues like the pandemic, low-grade constant incontinence, and why, as a writer on And Just Like That, she was scheming to get more diarrhoea into everything. I love funny writers, and I will buy and read anything any comic has written, but Irby's work has extra sparkle and polish. It's very much for readers, and I don't think any essayist has used the written form quite so effectively since David Starris. But maybe I just love all the poop jokes. Quietly Hostile by Samantha Irby is published by Faber and out now. Now back to Bally. Do you have any favourite books about the relationships women have with each other, whether that's a sisterhood or a friendship or a mother-daughter relationship or something else? Um, one of the best mother-daughter books that I read that is, it's, it's very, um, it's a very uneasy read is Burnt Sugar by Afni Doshi. I don't know if you've, you've come across that. Um, it's about a, a daughter kind of looking back on her past with her mother who was sort of involved in a, in a religious cult. Um, and her mother is, is not okay. You know, her mother, like this isn't a warm and fuzzy mother-daughter um, story. And I think that's why I was so drawn to it because it was just so honest and so real. 
And everyone I know who's read that book has described how creepy it is and how um, how 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 unsettled uh, they feel when they read it. And I feel that way too. Like every time I talk about it with people, I feel like I'm talking about a horror story, but it's not. There's nothing nothing violent really happens as far as I remember. Um, and but there is this real sense of kind of creepiness there that I think explores the darker side of mother daughter relationships without shining. A, too bright a light on it which is really really good i had that moment then because i think mate that come out around 2020 was it a sort of yeah kind of, ah yes it was shortlisted for the booker prize i remember because yeah. i thought i was like did i read that and then when he described it, it's like i don't think i have read that because i'd remember the creepiness but now i really really yeah. want to now it's going straight to my list um, <laughs> as a book that came out here uh called mother's day by a writer called abigail uh Burgess, i think her name is and it's about a woman who has been adopted and her birth mother comes back into her life and Mm. it's a black comedy but her birth mother is not well and charismatic but also scarily compelling and manipulative and it's a sort of constant guessing about what's going on and it's it made that your description of burnt sugar made me think of that because it I loved it because the heroine it's quite, she's got a bit of a sort of um, Fanny Price vibe. I'm a big Fanny Price yeah. apologist where she's really <laughs> vulnerable and isn't very good at speaking mm-hmm. up for herself, but you were drawn to her and she's powerful in her own way. And it's just, it's really, really funny. Abigail Bardess is a really, really funny writer. And that just works so well with the darkness of it and the strangeness. And you sort of, I was really, really tearing through it and I'm like... I feel weird and I don't know why, but it's this book and I'm hooked. You know what comes to mind? Um, another one is um, Silver Sparrow by Kayari Jones. Oh, I love Have that book that? so much. Is Isn't that, it beautiful? Is that the one where the, um, he is... The polygamy. Yeah, and the, the first line yeah. is, my father is a bigamist. Oh, yeah. and those two guys. Yeah, yeah, bigamist. I love the... Uh, is it Atlanta in the 80s? Is it the 80s that it's yeah. set? Yeah, I think 80s, early 90s, yeah. Yeah, it's so wonderfully written. The characters are so vivid. Everything, everything about it is just like pitch perfect. I, yeah, I think there is there, there are some complication, complicated mother relationships and mother daughter relationships there. I mean, how can there not be like there? You know, there's two women sharing a husband essentially, um, and their daughters who don't know anything about it. Uh, it's it's a it's a really good read. It's 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 really it's very very compelling reading. I mean, because I was thinking, and it's sort of reductive, isn't it, to compare authors' books with each other, but I loved mm-hmm. An American Marriage. Mm-hmm. But I'd reread um, Silver Sparrow first. That really had my heart, I think, because of those yeah. two sisters. I'm curious yeah. about how you feel about that as an author, that your readers presumably have their favourites. And especially, <laughs> you know, as you've just got a book coming out, the sort of... yeah. Do you find it easy to let people pick their favorite? Do you have a favorite? Is your favorite always the book that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I have a favorite. I definitely have um, different views of the experiences that I had writing those books. It's also hard to kind of judge or value my books in any way once they've they've left my hands. Like once they turn into products, they they become something else entirely. Um, and I feel quite detached in a way from them. It's interesting when people say like this one was my favorite or like that one because it's it is it, it surprises me sometimes like what people pick as their favorite and why some certain some people pick certain books as their favorites. I think I would worry if there was a if there was a massive consensus on which one the best one was <laughs> from everyone. You know, everyone went, "Yep, you peaked at that one. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> the rest are all terrible." But it seems like people come to the books in different ways for different reasons and they've had different experiences of them in the same way that I had different experiences writing them. So I think what they're experiencing as readers is similar. You know, it sort of reflects um, what I was going through as a writer. So I'm quite, yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy for, for people to pick their favorites and, you know, they don't need to tell me so much about them. <laughs> they don't need to be like, this one was way better than that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You've lost your spark. You've lost the magic now. <laughs> as authors, I think there's some feedback is, is useful and helpful and great. And that, that feedback, <laughs> no, I, I, I can live without it. No, no. I, did, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday and she was saying that she was, uh, she's just had a baby. And I think she was um, at the doctor's for a checkup. 
and she had just finished it was just sort of in the middle of reading City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert and the woman that she was sat next to waiting was reading it and she said because she couldn't help herself I'm reading that and I love it so much and you know where are you and those women are now really close friends and she said you know if we'd just been there looking at our phones we wouldn't have had that and I'd love to hear about any books you sort of discovered or connections you've made through books that or just anything because I think especially now when we I don't know how I mean the I love hate relationship with social media and Instagram but for better or worse it's kind of a great way to discover books and writers I might not have encountered otherwise I do remember when I was in college I kept talking about a book that I really liked and it was kind of a surprising thing for me I so when I was about 16 um we we, we were living in the Philippines and I picked up there were again the, at the time, there were very limited choices of, of um, English books. And I picked up this novel called Plain Song by an author named Kent Hariff. And it was set in like, I don't know, somewhere in, somewhere in, in middle America on a farm. But it had all these like interconnected stories about these different characters. It was so far removed from my life. It was so, so different from my from my experiences of the world. And yet the way he built that world felt so familiar to me. It was so beautiful that I felt like I was in this Midwestern town and I felt that I was, like I knew these characters intimately. I remember just being so drawn to it and thinking it was just the most beautiful book. And then it just seemed, I mean, no one else, you know, had really heard of it or, or you know, um, knew anything about it. And then like two years later when I was in university, I think, I someone asked me about, you know, a, a book that I really liked. And I said, oh, I really love this book. It's strange to say, but like the one book that you know makes me really want to go out and, and, and write and build worlds like this is this book called Plain Song by this author named Kent Hariff. And this one girl that I knew that, you know, we, we were sort of acquainted with each other. We were sort of friends, but she just went, oh, my God, I read that, too. Now, she actually came from a context that was quite similar to that. So she came to it as like, yes, this is my life. She came from, I think, upstate New York. And, you know, yes, the farms and the, you know, the small town mentality and the teen pregnancy, all the things that go on in this book. But we both just bonded over it. And it was so special. You're right. You know, there's something like something about it that's just so um, that, that that forms a bond instantly. When you know that someone else has has um, had an experience, has like stepped into a world that you stepped into and you were so you felt so intimately connected to that world. And you thought it was just you. But it turned out that there were like there are other people too. When you find each other, it's like it's like you find a long lost sibling or something. It's very special. It really is, isn't it? That magical moment where you're like, oh, we we both know we've both got a best yeah. friend in common. <laughs> yeah, and I think that happens even even now with like certain popular titles that I know other people are reading. Mm. Um, I get so excited for them to finish the book so we can talk about it. I'm not a member of any book clubs, so I actually think that might take the magic away if we're all mandated to read it for some reason. <laughs> But um, yeah, just, you know, t- t- telling a friend, read this, you know, like I-, I recommend this book. And then they actually go, when they actually pick up that recommendation, because, you know, I recommend books all the time. I don't expect people to really take me up on any of them. And then we sit and have lunch and we're like, so what did you think? And we talk about it. It's so exciting. It's revisiting it all over again. Oh, I think especially as well, because sometimes if there's like a ton of hype around a book yeah. in the way that sometimes you know when cooking you sort of you feel like oh I'm kind of bored of this meal before I've eaten it because I've really been in it you sort of feel that and then someone says no 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 I know there's a lot surrounding this but it really is worth your time um, and I just had that with uh, Cleopatra and Frankenstein by Coco Mellors which I'm like oh, yeah. look stop telling me about this book I will get you and I'll get you and I'm like, fine I'll read it and it is so great and it wasn't what I was expecting it to be at all oh I you know that one that one's on my list actually that was the one yeah I, I did hear a lot about it um, I haven't haven't read it yet in an unlikely way, I just went to see um, A Little Life on stage uh, last mm. night. It's um, in London at the moment. And that is another book where, and I think I've talked about that a lot on the podcast, where mm. people kept saying, look, read it. You'll be so sad. You'll have to go to bed for a week. It's <laughs> bleak. It's grim. It's depressing. It's terrible. And no one said what I needed to hear, which is this is a book about the deepest love and the deepest tenderness and it's a book about community and a found family and in a different way and I think perhaps because they're both New York books and I love a good New York book and it really feels it's got that electric buzzy 
Manhattan mm-hmm. feeling, um, as well as being about the sort of you know, like vulnerable humans falling mm-hmm. apart when everything is rushing yeah. past them. That's beautiful. I, I couldn't get through a little life. I it was too it was too much suffering for me. I think the time I was reading it as well, I had just moved and, and, and I was feeling quite untethered and I was feeling a little bit homesick and all that. So I knew that just I just wasn't in the in the space to to take it. And then I have a son now <laughs> and and I think I'm very, very sensitive to anything that has child abuse mm-hmm. in it. You know, I think I always have been, but then having a small child, um, it automatically eliminates lots of titles for me. But I enjoy hearing people talk about how much a little life impacted them because it clearly did. It clearly is very worthy of something. Oh, I just I just read a book and I found it again in a local um, sort of secondhand shop. I think it might be called French Exit. Just the premise and the appeal and thinking, oh yeah, I'm curious about that. I'll pick that up. I'll ignore my teetering, teetering pile with all the books on it. Um, <laughs> and it was it was just so nice to come to something with no expectations at all and be slowly pulled in. Yeah, it's so rare, isn't it, that we do that? Like I, you know, there's so much information about books out there now. When we were kids, we never looked it up on Goodreads. <laughs> Or, or search for the Kirkus review or whatever it was, or at least I didn't. It really was just about the the, the synopsis and the, the cover. Yeah, I'd be in the library and I would be allowed, I think yeah. I was allowed 20 books on my, which sounds like such a lot, it was 20 or 10. <laughs> but my parents' rule was half of them could be Babysitter's Club books and the other half had oh. to be other books. Why do you think parents did that? Or te- parents and teachers really like there's something and I I recognize it in myself now interestingly there's something about like the series that really bothered them like not the babysitter's Mm. club itself but just like the idea of just Mm. like reading one type of series or just being involved with one group of characters I don't know why but it feels it's a very um knee-jerk reaction like when I tell my son let's let's watch a movie let's watch a Pixar movie he goes no I want to watch a show and he only really wants to watch you know like Peppa Pig or uh, PJ masks or any of those things and and we and like I'm sure it's fine because I'm sure that's what I did is like, there's something familiar about the formula and the characters but my husband and I get you know, sometimes we're like no you have to watch a movie <laughs> <That's so> <laughs> you're going to watch Frozen you're going to watch Moana you know I love that it's Frozen for your cultural education <laughs> yeah. but I've never thought of it in terms of what we watch on screen but that is fascinating mm. I do think that in the way that our parents really want to make sure that we eat from all the food groups and (laughs) not just you know delicious carbohydrates or whatever (laughs) that there is that and I do think as well that it's because of the babysitter's club books and Sweet Valley Mm. High that I was able to and actually I think of Jane Austen and my mum had um a set that I think was probably quite popular in the 80s or 90s, where it's the six Austen novels with those like blue covers and sort of hardback all together. Oh, nice. And that looked yeah. like a series, and that felt like a series. Yeah. And definitely because of the series I'd read and known, I'd sort of been easing into my reading <laughs> habit and reading muscles. I was thinking, oh, oh, what's that? Um, and also, <laughs> I love the trailer for Sense and Sensibility. And my mum, who is mm. such an Austin fan, is like, you are reading the book first, child. <laughs> Don't think you're going to get away with <laughs> the film first. Could I mention another book? Please um, do. Sorry. <laughs> Just came to mind. Um, another book that, that I feel is very underrated. Um, that that really speaks to the power of female friendship and and female collaborations. Um, the Animators by Kayla Ray Whitaker. Have you heard of that one? No. It's funny because it, it popped to my mind just now when we were talking. It actually didn't pop into my mind as a, as a, a female friendship novel at first when you asked that question. But I was thinking about um, that joy of of, of experiencing a book um, and finding other people who have that. A couple of years ago, my in-laws decided that we wouldn't exchange presents at Christmas. We would all just give, we would all just, um, you know, draw uh, names out of a hat and give each other books. And it was the most thoughtful, most, like, it was just the most beautiful thing. Like, we all went out and really thought about which books, you know, each person would like. My husband has three older sisters, and one of the sisters gave the other sister this book, The Animators, and then a few months later, we went on a family holiday and it was lying around because one of them was reading it. And she was she did say, it's so good. I can't believe how good this is. It's such a good book. 
And I picked it up and I was hooked as well. And it became this, like, we became this sort of three-person fan club of this book. We talked about it a lot. We talked about the characters like we knew them. We're like, why do you think she did that? I don't know. You know, I really worry about her choices sometimes. We talked like that about this, these characters. And it was, there was something so special about it. But there was literally nobody else that I met who had read it, um, who, who, who knew much about it. And I don't know why. I don't know why it kind of just slipped by so many people because it's so well written. It's about these two young women who meet at university and they both come from, you know, quite quite sort of rural, low-income backgrounds. They're both um, at, at this university and they, they bond with each other because they're both really into animating and they're both really into art and drawing. And they become this this collaborative team um, and they win awards. And it just, and, and, you know, they, it, it, the the book kind of takes you through the highs and lows of their career at the highs and lows of their friendship and the way they go back to the ta- the town of one of the one of the animators to to film or to to um i think they get a grant so they can they can um make a film about um a, a really dark experience that she had in her childhood that she really has to kind of unlock in order to just move forward in her life and in her career it's so well done it's so vivid and more people should hear about it. More people, should, you should read it. Everyone should read it. Thank you yeah. so much for telling me about that because I'm <laughs> definitely going to read it. And I love, I really love stories about women doing very well at work and women who are really engaged with their careers. And when they have like professional wins, I think, again, a bit like the sex books, it's easier to find that in a story than it is in life. Yeah. But yeah, women excelling professionally and finding fulfillment, it makes me so 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 happy um and I think if there's a there's a Louise Bagshaw book uh, might be called Career Girls I read it when I was a teenager and even though it's not a YA book it, it definitely has that that feel um it is mostly fun it is all fun but it's about and it's very kind of there are lots of um lots of big leaps um I think it's Topaz is a journalist and Rowena is a record executive and producer and they're both in these sort of very like glamorous worlds and lots of like going into the boardroom and people say and then then she had the idea that saved the company <laughs> not saying what that <laughs> idea is but I find that lots of fun to read um I'm trying to think of an example that's a bit more serious and I wrote a book called Careering which is sort of about the that yeah. is sort of told by the the main character is the boss and the other main character is the, the new junior writer turned intern. And I really wanted to get that feel like when I've been at work and my first magazine job and, you know, me and my other, you know, little nerdy junior colleagues were all just so obsessed with like what our boss thought of us and does she yes. like us and does she think we're doing well? And she's like, no, she has got much bigger things to worry about. She wasn't thinking she's about you at all. At all. <laughs> like that Mad Men meme. Yeah. <laughs> a book that I think is coming out in the UK might not be until July, but it's really great and I loved it so much. And when you were talking about um Plain Song. Plain Song, okay. in a yeah. very different way. Um Minor Disturbances in Grand Life Apartments by a writer called Hima Sukar, I think, and it's set in uh, Chennai. And that's not a part of the world that I visited or that I know, mm. but I felt the heat of it it's a real like the food it's just so great and there's a part where the uh two women go on a sort of a pilgrimage to london to Mm. try to fix a a mother-daughter relationship that's gone awry Mm -hmm. and because the daughter's studying at oxford and that perspective of being a sort of a a woman who has only ever really known chennai trying to navigate london and be like what the (laughs) hell is this um (laughs) i just adored it and I still feel like I'm not quite out of that world I think I finished the book at the beginning of this mm. week and I still feel like my brain is a little bit there and and also it's yeah look because I don't book think hangover a book hang, but a nice book <laughs> hangover so one thing that I read recently that I've the same same feeling that you have of not quite out of that world yet still thinking about the character still um still feel like I'm there and, and I've had a hard time moving on, actually. I've read other things as palate cleansers, but they haven't done it for me quite yet. Um, Demon Copperhead by Barbara King, Kingsolver. Oh, I've not read that yet. I'd love it's to amazing. hear about it. It's amazing. You know how I said earlier that I don't really like to read anything with, with 
you know, any, even, even the hint of like, you know, children being, being harmed. Um, I was really surprised that I decided to, like, once I read the first page of this book, I went, I want, I, I trust this narrator. Um, I want to know his story. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I, I, I think I need to, I, I, I felt like I kind of owed it to this character to, to listen to what he had to say. Um, it's about a young boy who grows up in Appalachia during the opioid crisis, which is still ongoing. Uh, I think he's, it's, it's kind of at the beginning of it when he's growing up or it's, it's a modern day version of David Copperfield. So it's got, you know, this real great cast of characters, all these children who are orphaned, um, all of these really sort of selfish adults and really, and, and it's, it's a world where just no one's taken care of, like no, or no child is taken care of. And it, it, it very much reflects the, I think the foster care system in the U S and, and very much reflects what, what has gone on with the opioid crisis um and it's it's just a powerful read and the, the thing that gets you through it because it, it does sound very bleak like when i've described it to people they're like oh i don't know if i can read that the thing that gets you through it is that he's got he's just savvy enough he's just resilient enough and he's got just enough luck by his side like some pretty bad things happen but not the worst things but he does give you an impression of things and of the landscape and how it's it's pretty terrible for other kids um, who who might not necessarily survive it? It's it's just such a wonderful book, and and I really I really feel very um, still feel very attached to that character. Oh, I still I mean, still want to know how he's doing. He's real. He's very much real to me. Honestly, I think it's been sort of on my list in that mm. you know this is serious literature, and Barbara Kingsold yeah. is a, a master, and I must get to this. <laughs> but also, I wasn't quite feeling up to it, but the way you described it has made me think. I think this is going to be extraordinary and brilliant. And it made me think yeah. of the book I love and talk about a lot, um, The Girl with a Lounging Voice by Abby Daré. Ah, uh, yes. Dunny, the heroine, who, gosh, is she 12 or 14 when it starts? He's sort of brought into a forced marriage. And the mm. situation is so bleak and desperate. Mm. And she's abused and she runs away. And mm. that way of describing it makes it sound like the most miserable, devastating yeah. book on earth. But again, it's because she is so hopeful and lovable and it's the luck that's on her side and just enough yeah. people reaching out to help her and it makes it this really joyous resonant book and I think it's because she's just the most wonderful heroine and you want to stay with her Not too much of a spoiler to say it's sort of okay in the end yeah that's that's exactly how, how this is for this character demon as well I feel like I mean you know that he's going to be okay or you know he's going to survive from the beginning because he's 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 narrating his own story um and it's in past tense so you know right like he's looking back on this time but then also just there's this kind of there, there's just enough of this assuredness or this sense of of there, there's just a streak of survival in it that keeps you going i think that's really the only way you can write a book like that yeah like, you know, can write about a thing like that because i was thinking and i was like what if it was from the point of view of tommy another character you know, or that that little boy in the foster home, and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I like I I wouldn't be able to bear it. Like it would just be it would be so sad. I mean, there definitely are books where I think I would love to hear this retold by this other character, mm. but also I can understand it. Like oh, I don't really. I think their yeah. their story might be too vulnerable, and it might like finish me off. I could honestly talk to you about books for like <laughs> the rest of the year, probably. I'm having such a great time that I know Same you've here. got things to do. <laughs> and producer Jail needs to edit this, sadly. So are there any books at all that uh, you thought of that we haven't mentioned that you'd like to flag up before we go? I would I would recommend another one that, again, I think does, hasn't really crossed as many radars as it should. It's called The Far Field by an author named Madhuri Vijay. It came out, I think, in 2020 maybe 2019 um and it's about actually it's also sort of a mother-daughter story it's about a young woman who grows up in bangalore she goes to i think after her mother dies she she travels to kashmir um which she has only known as like you know from the media and everything it's like a war-torn place and she goes there to um try to find the family of a man that her mother was friends with when they lived in bangalore and it's, I read it during lockdown and something about reading a book like that, that took me to another place and it really immersed me and also um, 
took away so many misconceptions, you know, from, from the narrator and then also from me about a place. Like she really just um, created this beautiful place where people lived and thrived um, and yes, was affected by violence and all of that, but wasn't the only thing about that place. It's just a really powerful read. And the way she portrays the mother in that book and the, and the mother-daughter relationship, again, it's just, it's very, it's really fraught, but it's really beautiful. I would highly recommend it because I don't know enough people who've read it and I think it's a real shame. That sounds wonderful. And what I loved about it actually was because it was sort of intracultural. It, like she lives in India and she's traveling to another part of India. So she's, she lives in India, yet she has these real stereotypes about another part of India. So you know, we feel guilty for, <laughs> for just believing you know, all the media images that we get you know, about a place. Um, but then even like within that country, there are all these biases and there are all these misconceptions about that place. So I thought that was was really telling and really interesting. I love it. I'm definitely going to read that. Thank you so much. Um, I've had such a brilliant time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Huge thanks to Bally. Now You See Us is published by HarperCollins and out now. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find all the books that Bally mentioned at acast.com slash booked and you can see a selection at bookshop.org. You can find us and follow us on social media at whybooked. Huge thanks to everyone who's given us a five-star review. And if you haven't done it yet and you've been listening for a little while, we would really appreciate it. It's the best way to help people to find the podcast and their new favourite book. Finally, I'll leave you with this from Saul Bellow. A writer is a reader. Move to emulation. See you next time. 